Until we are all free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. You're listening to Navarra FM on Resonance 104.4 FM, London's finest radio station. I am James Butler. Those lines, of course, from a famous speech given by Mario Savio in California in 1964. Used to be famous, anyway. It's a classic electric speech justifying direct action, the claim that there is a breaking point at which exploitation or oppression become so obscene or simply so dangerous that verbal protest is not enough and that you must act to put an end to them directly. And nowhere is that question more pressing, more difficult, harder to avoid confronting than on climate change. It is a moment that anyone who has thought seriously about climate change has encountered, that if you really take it seriously, as seriously as it demands to be taken, what would you do? That question sits at the heart of today's show. The title of the book, which prompts it, couldn't really be more provocative on that question. It's called How to Blow Up a Pipeline by Andreas Malm, whom some listeners may know from his extraordinary political economic history of carbon capitalism, fossil capital. Before we jump into the show, though, this. I've thought long and hard about how to present this show. Broadcasting environments in Britain are restrictive on shows like this, and we ought to say at the top of the show that neither Resonance FM nor Navarra Media endorses these arguments and that they represent only one side of the climate debate, a careful bit of distance. And yet I personally find it hard to do that, and I am speaking personally now. One of the points being made, maybe unsubtly in that introductory clip, is that these questions about when and how to take action, action which goes beyond the verbal, rhetorical or symbolic, these aren't new questions. The ethical and strategic implications of taking action of this kind have been thought about and debated on the left for a long time. And as you will hear, there are risks too in too readily abandoning the political. 
These aren't merely abstract questions. In the latter half of the introduction, you heard a clip of Jessica Reznicek, one of the Catholic workers who took action to break and sabotage an oil pipeline in the United States. Her argument that the poisoning of the water table, the wanton arson of the web of life, the effective slow murder of the global south first and the planet next is violence. It must be recognised and resisted as such. That is a powerful and cogent one. And there is another reason that this show is important. The climate is changing. Its consequences are becoming ever more obvious. What that means is that people will begin to take action when they must, and they may do so in clandestinity and in desperation. And those are conditions which breed fanaticism and extremism, which sever those taking actions from the life of ordinary people. And that's a risk I think we should avoid. So I offer this conversation on a difficult but legitimate political question, which I hope will spark further and wider debate. For the hands on the clock now rest perilously close to midnight. All right, let's get on with it. My name is Andreas Malm. I work at Lund University here in southern Sweden. Um, my discipline is called human ecology. I've um, written a book called How to Blow Up a Pipeline, Learning to Fight in a World on Fire. It will be out uh, in about a month. Uh, yeah, I, mo- I mostly work uh, on s- issues related to the climate crisis, various dimensions of it. Then we should jump in or sort of on that basis. I mean, you know, when Verso sent me the, the proof copy, I was, I was thrilled because it's the sort, of, the sort of argument and the sort of provocative uh, title <laughs> alone is what's needed. Um, I think, though, we should start off with a kind of general scene setting. It's sort of the general scene setting that, that, that you do in the book as well, um, which is where we are in the crisis. So I was thinking about this, you know, there's an activist I follow on Twitter, a guy called activist thinker, writer, uh, really fascinating uh, guy called Tadzio Muller, uh, who, who, you know, very often posts this graph, which is just, just a rising sort of uh, parts of a million graph. And it just plots each of the conference of parties. So these are uh, what gets called COP1, COP2, COP3. And it just like this graph just keeps on increasing as these conferences seem to do nothing. So, so why don't you just give us the lowdown of where we are in terms of the climate crisis on sort of multiple fronts. Yeah, I, I, the, the general trend, uh, as Tajo lays out here, uh, from the start of climate negotiations and from the maturation of climate science has been that the more we know about the climate crisis and the more dangerous it becomes, the more fossil fuels are burnt. The problem is a cumulative one. So adding another extra ton upon all the previous tons is what drives the problem. And the, 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 the totality of uh, global heating is a function of everything that's been emitted. And more and more is emitted all the time. When you realize that the problem is cumulated, what that means is that we need to stop emitting entirely. So cutting emissions back by 5 or 10% or even maybe 17%, as it has happened this year because of the pandemic worldwide, isn't going to save the day because then you still keep emitting. The, the, the point is to stop completely, to stop adding extra uh, uh, weight, extra burdens to, to the atmosphere in the form of CO2. And uh, uh, only then will the, 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 the atmospheric concentration of CO2 potentially, in the best case, stop rising. And, and also potentially, in the best case, you can start to reverse the process and actually draw CO2 down. 
now, so that, that's one of the aspects of, of the crisis that it's essentially business as usual is just continuing, even though we're, we're having a blip, uh, uh, an unexpected uh, fall in emissions this year. Now, uh, this, this situation with the pandemic provided, as many saw early on, an opportunity to try to break with business as usual and move towards what people refer to as a green recovery or something of that, that kind. Instead, recent data show that the leading economies of the world are doubling down on fossil fuels. So they're not taking this opportunity to liquidate the fossil fuel industry, but to the contrary, they're trying all they can to resurrect it and keep it alive almost zombie-like, as, as some observers uh, argue. So uh, they're pouring in money into the fossil fuel industry worldwide. Almost twice as much money is going to fossil fuels uh, as to renewable energy in the G20 economies. And you, you can also see this on a much smaller scale. In Germany, the largest emitter in the European Union, we have this year seen the opening of a new coal-fired power plant the inauguration of a mega airport in Berlin, the expansion of the Autobahn premised on the destruction of an old growth forest. In the UK, you had uh, the first deep coal mine green-lighted and approved by the government in November last year, the first one in 30 years. And on and on it goes. One of the things I think that's really striking in the opening of the book is you make the point that, like, uh, you know, it doesn't matter in one sense the sort of you know, increasing tendency towards a kind of green rhetoric among politicians. You look at the kind of infrastructural and capitalist investment, you make the argument that it's something that is not about just now. It's about projecting something into the future. That capitalist investment, particularly in kind of fixed capital, so technology, uh, you know, extractive technologies, uh, you know, mining, uh, et cetera, et cetera, automobiles, roads, et cetera. Uh, this stuff is like 40, 50, 60 years. That's the projection into the future. So confronted with this, which, which is, an, you know, it is an apparent paradox. What do you make of this? You know, politicians increasingly make the right noises about climate change uh, while doing relatively little to almost nothing. Why is this the case? Is political action just incredibly constrained here? Yeah, I, I mean, fundamentally, I think it's because states in advanced capitalist countries are there to promote capital accumulation. They're, that's their raison d'etre. That's why they exist. That's how they function. That's their basic modus operandi to smooth the path of further valorization of capital. And that means, because capital is so deeply fossil in its character, encouraging continued uh, accumulation through the production and consumption of fossil fuels. The only way to break states out of that mold is to shift the balance of forces so that you have uh, popular forces for climate justice uh, that become strong enough to force states to change uh, trajectory and uh, start dismantling this industry. And I mean, th there are signs, small signs, but signs that that can happen. The most encouraging in the past few weeks is probably the decision by the Danish government to um, immediately end all exploration for new uh, reserves of oil and gas in the Danish part of the North Sea. So in, there will be no more licensing rounds, even though there are probably billions of profits and state revenues to make still in the in the Danish zone of the uh, of the North Sea. And uh, 
it's not that the Dan- I mean, the Denmark is not a major player in in oil and gas worldwide, but it's it's a fairly large producer in the European Union. And it, it, this decision has a symbolic value because what it says is that we're actually going to phase out this industry. They, they could have gone much further and said we're going to stop production of fossil fuels in the Danish North Sea from tomorrow. They they didn't do that, but they said we're not going to explore for any more. And that's given given the trends in the world today, it's pretty radical. And why did that happen? It happened very clearly because in 2019, Denmark had one of the largest climate mobilizations in Europe with the Fridays for Future and climate strikes. It was really a mass movement in Denmark as in Germany, and this created a momentum and a pressure that translated into uh, a real salience of the climate issue in the Danish election of that year. One reason why the Social Democrats won. Now, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not in love with Danish social democracy because it's, <laughs> it's quite reactionary or, or even almost proto-Thatchers. And incredibly racist. In, yeah. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah. So its migration policy is, is disastrous, but here they're actually doing something pretty uh, impressive. And that, I would say that it's uh, almost completely due to the popular mobilization from below that happened in 2019. So this is one of the things that that you kind of trace out in the beginning of the book are these kind of successive waves of struggle, which, um, you know, I think it's reasonable to say, I, I think your periodization is that the last wave of struggle would be around the kind of climate camp movement, um, which I think many of us remember or indeed participated in. And then now you have the the sort of uh, the stuff that, that hit in the last couple of years, so Extinction Rebellion and stuff like that. And, you know, I think this is a good place for us to talk about, you know, some of the kind of received ideas of that those movements, right, which are very much focused around sort of uh, being very explicit around a kind of non-violent direct action or kind of protest, uh, which are kind of very avowedly pacifist. Uh, and you start the book by by quoting from something by John Lanchester, which I think, um, which you then go on to call Lanchester's paradox. And it's a realization, I think, that a lot of us who have thought seriously and hard about climate change have had. Could you explain it to us? He wrote a piece back in 2007, I believe it was, where he says roughly that it's it's strange and puzzling that people haven't uh, uh, engaged in more, I'm, I'm, I'm not quoting verbatim here, but from memory, roughly what he argues is that it's, it's strange and puzzling that people haven't gone to greater lengths in, in actually targeting, physically targeting the machines that destroy climate. So he says that quite easily, for instance, you could take the SUVs off our streets if enough people just started to scratch the SUVs with their keys or doing some similar damage, selective damage to SUVs. And if you do it systematically and methodically enough, it will establish a disincentive against uh, having SUVs uh, vis-a-vis other cars. And you you would then uh, presumably... uh, cause a, a, a change. Yeah, get the SUVs off, off the streets. But this isn't happening. And he, he's asking, and this is 13 years ago, he's, he's asking, how is this possible? What, what's the reason? Is it because those who, uh, who believe in the reality of the, crisis, of the crisis still don't really believe it strongly enough? Or is it because they're highly educated? But then he writes, well, but terrorists are often highly educated. So that, that can't be the explanation. And he sort of leaves it there. And I I mean, I take it as a point of departure because I I fundamentally think that it is strange and puzzling and hard to explain that the climate movement has been so incredibly peaceful, civil, gentle, almost meek up to this very point. It's puzzling given, uh, given the magnitude of this crisis, 
given the blatant injustices that constitute the crisis, given the, the extreme urgency of the matter, and not the least the fact that potential targets for militant action are almost everywhere in the global north. I mean, it's not very hard to find SUVs or uh, various oil and gas uh, or coal installations in, in our countries, in our metropolises. I mean, the objective conditions for such campaigns should be in place, but still nothing of that kind has happened. And as you said, the climate movement uh, in its various cycles so far has committed itself to uh, what I would consider a rather extreme version of pacifism. It adds to the paradox that the, the most recent cycle of climate mobilization, the one in, in 2018, 2019, hardened the doctrine of p- pacifism because the Extinction Rebellion made it the, f- the fundamental platform of its entire project that as soon as a movement engages in any kind of militant action that smells of violence, you immediately alienate uh, the people and lose your mass support. That's like, I mean, that's the premise of the whole XR project. It's absolutely true. And and yet at the same time, you know, some of the rhetoric that accompanied XR seemed to stem from a similar realization that, you know, underlies the Lanchester piece, which is to say, you know, if you take this crisis as seriously as it needs to be taken, then actually something very profound in the very fundamental orientation to the way that you live in the world has to change. We're going to, I'm sure, criticize XR a lot for this stuff. But, you know, one thing I think you can't criticize them over is like, is, is, is that they are right about the degree of seriousness that has to be taken here. So let's get into where they go wrong, <laughs> um, which is which is like so. You make a distinction, um, and I think it's quite an important distinction between like uh, between a moral pacifism and a strategic pacifism. Um, could you just explain for us a, a little bit, especially about the rationale of strategic pacifism, which I think is what lies behind some of the common sense of the climate movement? Yeah. So let, let me just uh, totally endorse what you just said about the about XR. Uh, and let me let me give them credit for for raising the climate struggle to another level uh, through their mobilizations in 2019. Let's let's recognize that XR has achieved a lot. Unfortunately, all the momentum that our movement built up in 2019 was completely lost when the pandemic broke up. But that that's another another matter. So, I mean, the, 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 what what I want to do is not to denounce XR, but to take the process of quickly learning. To, to wage this fight one step further. And this is the step that XR doesn't want to take because XR is committed to strategic pacifism. Now, the distinction between moral and strategic pacifism is basically that the moral version says that it's always ethically wrong to engage in any kind of violence. Strategic pacif- pacifism says that it's not so much ethically wrong, but it's inefficient and counterproductive always for a social movement to engage in any kind of violence, any kind, including property destruction. So it's not just about violence against people, but it's about violence against things, goods, machines, and stuff like that as well. And here, uh, XR, Extinction Rebellion, they base themselves on a particular book called Why Civil Resistance Works by Erika Chenoweth and Maria Maria Stevens, I think her her name is. And they purport to to show through quantitative analysis of social movements in past uh, half century or whatever it is, that this is uh, a a universally valid theorem that as soon as a social movement engages in violence, it uh, becomes a fringe phenomenon. It uh, loses whatever popular support it has. 
it degenerates into violence, and it doesn't reach its goals. It's only when movements stick to principled nonviolence that they succeed. Now, as I argue in this book, this is an absolutely unsustainable thesis because it doesn't conform to very basic empirical facts about how movements in our world today and in the past decades have in fact operated. And let's just take one very recent case, namely the Black Lives Matter movement, the one social movement that has shaken things up in 2020. If strategic pacifism were true, then when the good people of Minneapolis went into the third precinct police station after the lynching of George Floyd, stormed it and burnt it down, then the movement should have fizzled out and been universally denounced and lost all its mass support. In fact, what happened was exactly the opposite. It was that moment that served as the catalyst for the movement for black lives to leap to a mass scale that it has never reached before. Because what what the storming of the police station told people was that the police is not above the law, and the police as an institution is not something beyond our control. We can actually physically go in and take control over a police station. And that was an incredibly inspiring scene for hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people uh, in the US and around the world. And you had, of course, other episodes uh, at the early phase of that mobilization of property destruction, of confrontation with the cops, that formed an absolutely essential moment of this mobilization that did not in any way uh, deter people from engaging in nonviolent, peaceful mass mobilization. Also, to the contrary, these things, though we're not, not without tension, but they did go hand in hand. You had people targeting property, as in toppling statues, smashing windows, targeting police stations, confronting cops and riots. And you had probably an overwhelming majority doing peaceful rallies, demonstrations, petitionings, vigils, whatever. And it's precisely this diversity of tactics that has constituted the movement for Black Lives this year as a real political force. And uh, I, I could I could go into the various historical cases, slavery, suffragettes, the Iranian Revolution, the Tahrir Square, Egyptian Revolution, and show exactly the same thing again and again. And I fundamentally think that this is, I mean, it's incredibly poor science about social movements. I, I mean, I can hardly pinpoint a single case of uh, social movement mobilization that hasn't included at least property destruction as part of its repertoire. So the question, the question we have to reach here is this one. If if this is the case for Black Lives Matter movement uh, and for for uh, the protests in Tahrir and the poll tax riots and whatever, why should we conclude that the climate movement should be virtually the first one in history tying its hands to the principle of absolute nonviolence? What reason is there to think that we in the climate movement face an enemy much easier to to beat and one that can be defeated? By, uh, by sticking exclusively to absolute nonviolence. And I don't see a good answer to that question. Right. I mean, it's, you know, it's kind of an intriguing question. It's an extremely convincing argument, I have to say, you make in the book. There, there's, a, there's something that occurred to me, and it occurred to me because I, I a couple of episodes ago, spoke with Alpa Shah, who's an anthropologist who studies the Naxalites in, in India. And she says, you know, it was interesting embedding herself with these people and talking to them about the way in which they kind of approach violence. And she's talking to one of the leaders. And he says something, I think, that, that is worth bearing in mind, which is which is to do, and, and, and 
you know, immediately we should say like one of the the things that you you're very careful to make clear is that the kind of action that you're talking about is not assassination it's not murder it's destruction of property and destruction of infrastructure um but but she says you know look there's there's something that's difficult about clandestinity and there's something that's difficult about these kind of actions which is that they create specialists in a particular kind of action and then the entire movement becomes oriented to producing those kind of specialists so so i guess the question has to be and you you, you use that old phrase that that those of us who have been around for a while <laughs> uh, in these movements will know which is the diversity of tactics and and it's often something that 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 is quoted or that is uh you know used you know, just as a, a sort of nod to say, uh, you know, th- there should be a diversity of tactics. But in reality, actually, of course, you know, people always think that their tactic is the, is the best way possible. You know, so, so what we're really thinking about here and what we're really you know, seeking to produce or the, the, the kind of movement that, that is envisaged, you know, when reading your book is one in which the, both the kind of formal political and the sort of, you know, direct action can sit side by side. Because, you know the, the the question here is it seems to me really about like what kind of political outcome is produced and that's actually the tension between these kinds of action and the formal political sphere uh you know they seem to me extremely difficult to navigate so you know what are the what are the sort of signposts what are the hallmarks to use a standard climate movement phrase that you know by which you navigate what kind of action um you know where where the boundaries are about what kind of action you take now you're getting down to the really extremely difficult questions <laughs> because, uh, I mean, when you start thinking along the lines of more militant action than one we've seen so far, you have to accept the possible scenario of producing uh, what's sometimes called a negative radical flank effect. So that your escalation doesn't actually benefit the movement but rather harms it as a whole and we don't want to we, we don't want to produce that effect if we have militant groups that engage in uh, in actions that are predominantly destructive in its impacts on the climate movement then those actions should be suspended i argue in the book but what's so extremely difficult about it is to is to specify in advance or even in the heat of the moment when that has actually happened because it's it's extremely hard for activists to tell when the effect of a particular action has been realized because it can take a long time for that effect to to show up obviously if you're going to uh, use the reaction from uh, bourgeois media as your yardstick of whether an uh, an action is successful or not you can't perform any action because you will always be denounced as a, as a lunatic and a fringe element and a terrorist or one. So, I mean, the, the, I, I don't think that I have a, a, a ready-made answer to this. And I think that what we need to do in the climate movement is to experiment and not shy away from tactics and actions that come with risks. Because we're in a situation where everything is saturated with risk, and there are no risk-free paths anywhere. We need to be bold enough to try out methods we haven't tried before, even if they come with certain risks, and evaluate those actions as we go along and see what effects they give. Uh, but, but an important thing here is that I'm not advocating a Naxalite movement in the sense of setting up 
an organization devoted to armed struggle and uh, having a very uh, tenuous, if any, relation to mass movements outside of that struggle. So uh, uh, the, the uh, absolutely central element is not to replace the sort of mass movements that we've seen, that we saw last year, 2019, uh, the mass movements for climate, to replace them with small groups doing audacious militant actions, but to supplement them with more militant tactics, to broaden the spectrum of, uh, uh, of our tactic, tactics, because I mean, we have nothing to lose here. We, re- we have no time to lose. And w- the damage to the climate system is already so enormous that we have to be ready to try more things than what we have tried so far. Um, I think one of the things to bear in mind, I think, you know, and, and what I was thinking while reading it is like the left in Europe already has experience of what happens if you leap just into clandestinity. It happened with the Red Brigades in, uh, you know, in Italy. It has a conclusion and it's not a great one. So, you know, we need to draw on those experiences and figure out like how to avoid that. And there's a, a whole host of kind of great writing about that stuff. It occurred to me that, you know, obviously one of the the things here is about thinking, you know, because so you say early on in the book, and I think it's I think it's true that ultimately the action here, the the only thing, the only force which can equal the force of capital ultimately is going to be the force that is wielded through the state. And so, you know, it was one of the things that confronted me as someone who has historically been kind of very skeptical about parliamentary politics. And this is a few years ago, I had to challenge myself to say, okay, if I take the climate crisis seriously, I also have to take seriously that the vehicles we use to maneuver the state in one way or another are going to be political parties. So I'm going to have to engage with them in one way or another. And, I, you know, that that is a decision born out of my sense that, that there is a lack of time. Um other people make different decisions, you know, such as, you know, for instance, we should go and shut down every major junction in London, for instance, because we need to bring everything to a standstill. So it seems to me that there are challenges to be faced on kind of, you know, the, the people who think political parties are the answer, people who think, you know, being out in the streets all the time are the answer. It's obviously not, you know, there are limits to both of these things, but but bringing them together seems to me to be, be extraordinarily, uh, uh, you know, that, that it's hard to figure out, uh, you know, the, the, the logics of each scenario, the logics of each form of action will often conflict with each other. And so I, I wonder if you have any sense of how, you know, someone with a foot in both camps, as it were, how, how, how to navigate that. Yeah, well, I, I have never had a foot on the parliamentary <laughs> side of things, I have to confess. <laughs> uh, I mean, I have a foot in academia and I have one foot uh, or maybe a toe rather these days in <laughs> in, uh, in, in the more uh, f- sort of radical direct action climate movement. I mean, you're, you're, again, you're, you're, you're absolutely right, spot on in, in pinpointing the, the tension and the friction, but also potentially the dialectic between trying to work within the state apparatus, as in winning seats in, in parliamentary uh, assemblies and, and things like that, uh, winning elections on the one hand, and on the other building force on the streets. Now, I'm, I'm quite convinced personally that the impetus to change will never come from inside parliaments. And the prime mover of any transition away from fossil fuels will be extra parliamentary. And it will come, it will come from outside the state. But uh, it has to try to channel its forces towards the state, or how should I put it, to uh, have a focus on the state 
to, to sort of force the state to leverage its potential power against fossil capital. You, you could, of course, you could, of course, go much further. You could say that, well, we should give up on the existing states completely and replace them with completely different sort of states. And I, I would be sympathetic to that aspiration. Yeah. But, but exactly as you're saying, we're extremely short of time and it's quite hard to see something like a workers council state or something like that all of a sudden appear. But it's, it's, it's a rather more easy to envision a scenario where you have a popular climate movement of the kind that we saw in 2019, but larger by an order or two of magnitude, and that includes more militant disruptive tactics that can actually push significant states, not only puny states like Denmark, but the really powerful states, US, UK, Germany, Australia, Canada, to uh, to start closing down their fossil fuel industry. I mean, that's that's within the realm of the conceivable uh, in this political conjuncture, I think. Yeah, I mean, it, it seems to me that one of the things that's really important here is like, um, so when direct actions are taken, they instantly become uh, sites of interpretation. So there's got to be some kind of organizational force which, you know, fights back in terms of interpretation. You cite in the book a really classic you know, disastrous action taken by people associated with Extinction Rebellion in London. And it was a classic case of failing to, you know, in that case, probably the only thing that could have been done is, is disown the action. But, um, uh, you know, it seems to me that, that that question of like how you build an infrastructure, you know, through which like actions are not just taken, but like the people who are determining what those actions mean get a hearing in public is 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 essential as well um so so it seems to me like there's a there's a question not just of like building capacity to take action but having control over how action is interpreted as well and and i think you know historically direct action movements i'm thinking here particularly about like the climate camps in the uk have walked a very fine line between kind of hostility to the mainstream media to the bourgeois press and whatever you want to call it and recognizing that you kind of have to try to bring some of them at least with you i wonder if you have any sense of like that side of the movement because it's not something that you really talk about in the book but you know i see the book as kind of trying to you know make space for this stuff in the mainstream yeah so i i should say here that the the part of the climate movement that i myself have identified most closely with in recent years and the one that i have seen as by far the most powerful and promising in europe is Ende Gelände, the German climate camp movement against the lignite coal industry, which is the, the dirtiest fossil fuel on earth. And Germany is the largest producer of that fuel on earth. And uh, those mines should be immediately shut down. It would be the easiest way to radically and quickly cut emissions on this continent. Now, uh, Ende Gelände, uh, which is based on the idea that you you assemble a l- fairly large group of people. Uh, nowadays, it's usually between four and six or seven thousand people in a, in a camp, and then you march uh, with uh, five fingers, as it's usually referred to. So, five parts of the of the of, of the march, and the, the aim is not to fight with the cops, but to reach the site uh, of a lignite mine or the the infrastructure that's built around it around it so the the, the the power plants the railway tracks and things like that and blockade institute a blockade of these things shut them down and uh, when when you reach the lines of cops you spread out 
and it, it, it always succeeds. The cops are always outmaneuvered by this, this wonderful tactic, really. And, uh, and the Gelände did succeed in forcing the state, the German state, to, to deal with the question of when are we going to phase out this coal. Unfortunately, the balance of forces wasn't good enough for us to get a, 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 an acceptable decision. Instead, the decision was that we're going to keep those mines running until 2038. So that's another two decades of lignite production and combustion. It's it's just completely indefensible. And that's why Ende Gelende is keeping up the struggle. And Ende Gelende, when it comes to dealing with the media, I think has been very successful and efficient in, in, in producing its own stories around and, and its own aesthetic, really, uh, of this kind of struggle. And it's, it's a very compelling aesthetic, perhaps not the least with the, the drones filming the actions when you see from above, and you, you, can, you can find uh, any number of videos on the web of this, when the fingers reach the police, police lines and, uh, and just uh, swim through the, 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 the stretched out, thin, thinned out police lines and, and you know, uh, f- go into the mines and up on the diggers and shut everything down. It's extremely inspiring and it has been very, very productive in uh, in pushing the resistance against coal. But it still hasn't succeeded because, as I said, Germany is still building new infrastructure based on fossil fuels. Even though Germany is arguably the, the country that has had the, the largest, the most popular mass-based climate movement in recent years, including the, the Fridays for Future climate strikes last year, which were by far the largest in Germany. And uh, it, I mean, this leaves some of us wondering, well, how do we take it to the next step? How do we escalate? And how do we go beyond what we've done so far within Endegelende or within other kinds of initiatives? And I think that's that's where that's where many in the movement are now, including young people who came into politics really for the first time last year and 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 became quickly radicalized through the uh, the Fridays for for Future movement, who are, have been in hibernation this year because of the pandemic, but they are extremely frustrated with the lack of progress and the the, the ongoing breakdown of the climate system that is visible to the eyes. Right. I mean, I think this is a you know it's an intriguing question. It's one that that I, I you know it's it's a difficult one to to know exactly you know how to judge it um because obviously i think both you and i are people who are surrounded by people who are you know who are most receptive to this stuff um but i you know what is your sense and it's kind of a related question to to the previous one what is your sense of of how far there is an existing social base to support this kind of action you make an argument about the um law of the tendency of uh receptivity to rise uh, you know, in the book, and so so this is about the way in which you know, as climate breakdown continues, it is likely that public opinion um, will be ever more receptive to these kinds of action. Um, you know, wh- where does that leave the climate movement in terms of sort of building in becoming a more mass movement than than it is at moment? This is this is a, a wide question that has, I think, many answers. But let me just give one of them, and uh, that's the one that would focus on on timing of actions. And I think that the climate movement should now step away from sort of mechanical calendars that says, or not step away from, but but go beyond. Calendars that say we're going to strike on particular Fridays or in conjunction with COP summits or things like that, and learn to fight when there is an actual extreme weather event or a very obvious climate disaster. 
So, for instance, if during the wildlife inferno in Australia at this time of the year, one year ago, you had had a group of activists going into one of the coal mines and somehow destroyed part of the infrastructure, uh, dismantled it, blown it up, uh, whatever, and sent out the communique saying, and this is again uh, about how, how to control the message, sent out a communique, an old art that the left has forgotten largely, explaining exactly why we did this. We did this because the wildfires that we're seeing right now are the direct result of the combustion of coal and other fossil fuels. And our government is refusing to start dismantling this, the, the coal industry. Instead, it is expanding it. And if it goes on expanding, we'll just have more of these wildfires and it, it will become more destructive. And it, it, the only way to get out of that cycle that takes us to hell, almost literally, is to take this infrastructure down. And if states can't do it, then we will have to do it ourselves so as to show them what what is necessary and what can be done. And I think that in the moment of the wildfire inferno, such a message would have reached a reasonable audience in Australia. And the problem in these these moments of extreme weather events and and climate disasters is that the, the link between the suffering and the pain that people experience and the sources of those ills are so very infrequently made. So in, in the moment of actual impact, people struggle, scramble to, to survive, to get out of, uh, of harm's way. But we're, we're never going to really get out of the harm's way unless we learn to target the source of the danger. And that is what radical wings of the climate movement, I think, uh, at this stage in history should should learn to develop capacity to strike against selected targets the next time there is a massive climate disaster. It doesn't have to be one that happens at home. It really can be one that happens uh, somewhere else uh, in in the global south, I don't know, in Yemen, in Somalia or somewhere else. Uh, but that is massive and that that provides the context for for stepping up and trying to show people that we really need to get away to do away with the the kind of infrastructure that we're going after. I get the sense from the book that the approach to sort of property destruction, the approach, I think, especially to target selection taken by two Catholic worker activists that you cite um, who who undertake a kind of uh, deliberate targeted destruction of pipeline infrastructure in the United States. It seems to me that 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 almost seems to you like the ideal kind of action. They were very clear about what they were doing. They were very clear in communicating the purposes, even to the point of offering themselves out in public and confessing to the act. So I suppose we should talk maybe a little bit about what the likely responses here are going to be, because you know you also chart you know increasing sort of legal uh, and sort of uh, police responses to direct actions of this kind, um, the kind of movement that you're talking about, the kind of activity that you're talking about, and the kind of activity that frankly probably does need to be undertaken would presumably produce a massive general crisis uh, in terms of, you know, even just uh, at the fundamental level of property relations in general in the global north. What can we arm ourselves with intellectually ahead of time to think about that, to, to figure out like how to take that question on? Well, well uh, let me just say that 
if we were to actually be able to produce a fundamental crisis in property relations in the global north, then we could start to make some progress. <laughs> because I don't think that there is a way to address the 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 fundamentals of the I mean the fundamental drivers of global heating without questioning private property and most fundamentally private property in the means of producing fossil energy we can't respect that property as sacred it's just I mean it's by definition seizing fossil fuel combustion worldwide which is what everyone knows needs to be done if we're going to avoid completely uncontrollable catastrophe. That means, by definition, closing down, banning, abolishing private property in fossil fuels. So, that, I mean, that means that you cannot have companies like BP or Shell or ExxonMobil, or for that matter, the, the state capitalist companies that produce oil, Equinor Equino in Norway and Saudi Aramco and all the rest. Those companies cannot continue to exist as companies producing oil and gas and coal. And in insofar as they are still privately owned, they need to be nationalized and taken over and uh, uh, told to to cease and desist and uh, and terminate all their their production of fossil fuels and convert it into some other kind of entities. So a crisis in property relations, at least when it comes to fossil fuels, is exactly what we need. Now, uh, we as activists, of course, face a risk of repression if we engage in more militant activity. I mean, we, we even face a risk of repression if we don't engage in militant activity, as, as the fate of XR in, in the UK recently has shown with all the legal measures that are put in place to criminalize XR. So it's not like uh, uh, nonviolent action is uh, a way to avoid all kinds of repression, which XR, uh, of course, knows. And the, the, when, you, when, you, when you deal with a factor of repression, there are different attitudes. And XR, of course, has had the attitude that we, we, want, we want to be arrested. We're jumping into the arms of the police. We're, 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 we're clamoring to fill the prisons with our bodies. I, I personally have very little, uh, I mean, that's not, that doesn't speak to my political temperament or, or basic instinct. In Ende Gelände, the, the aim is always to avoid arrest. When it comes to the Catholic workers, it's interesting because they did avoid arrest for a very long time, going up and down the, the, the Dakota Access Pipeline and blowing it up and destroying uh, equipment. And uh, eventually, because they felt that their, their voice still wasn't heard uh, loudly enough, they went out into the open and uh, uh, got themselves arrested. I think that targeted, intelligent, imaginative property destruction when it comes to fossil fuels is not incompatible with evading the forces of repression. Of course, some people will get caught. Some people will, 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 will be captured and face long uh, prison terms and things like that. But because the targets are so widespread, you can actually do quite a lot of things, I think, without getting caught. And uh, the aim for, uh, for militant climate activism should, I think, never be the, the kind of XR aim to, to enter in, in, into the prisons. And by the way, I mean, XR's whole attitude to the police is stone dead after 2020 and the movement for black lives. It can never again love the police like it did last year. So you talk about uh, the way in which a, a group that you were involved in targeted SUVs. 
um, ahead of COP15, which uh, now seems a very long time ago, because it is a long time ago. Um, <laughs> and, and so this was a campaign of kind of property, not property destruction, but property targeting. Uh, and it seems to me an example of exactly how you would choose the kind of, it's probably towards the softer end, but, uh, you know, uh, uh, of how you would choose a target and how would you think how you would think about choosing a target because it seems to me to uh you know touch on all those difficult questions about lifestyle change about luxury about conspicuous consumption which certainly have to be part of the argument and probably the least popular part of the argument here in the global north so could you just tell us a little bit about that yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, what we did in 2007 in Sweden is we had a group that went around in the dark in the night and deflating the tires of SUVs in rich neighborhoods in the large cities. And that was on the, I mean, it was based on the realization that SUVs are completely redundant machines that serve no basic human need whatsoever they are forms of conspicuous consumption of of they, they exist to flaunt wealth that's their only discernible purpose inside uh, cities like stockholm or gothenburg or malmo and uh, so we we uh, i mean we we did a very gentle form of uh, tinkering with those machines uh, we opened the valves of the tires and inserted a little uh, piece of gravel or stone and uh, turned the, the valve back on and then the tires deflated after a few hours there were no air in the tires and the, the, when the owners would get up in the morning to find uh, the car it would it would not be serviceable and we 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 were very cautious and and uh, made sure that a leaflet was posted very visible on the on the windscreen that explained the action and why we had uh, done it and we sent out communiques afterwards to the press and this became a big thing in 2007 when you had this uh, uh, one wave of climate activism in the global north uh, I, I have to say that uh, after my after my book came out in French, which, which is the only language that it has appeared in so far, th- this this particular tactic has been picked up by activists in in France. There was a new collective called La Ronce, meaning bramble, that that picked it up. But perhaps more significantly, the the XR chapter in Bordeaux went one night into rich parts of the neighborhood and deflated 220 SUVs. I mean, if you were to do this on a mass scale, systematically. Although obviously it's not a, it's not a question of bringing in masses into the streets to do this. You can do it in very small groups, but if you do it systematically, then you really can, as I said earlier, establish the kind of disincentive against uh, consuming SUVs. And the, the choice of SUVs, I mean, it's not it's not just based on some random kind of resentment against rich people, even though I think we should, we should have such resentment. But it's, uh, I mean, it, it, according to the International Energy Agency, the, the, the increasing share of SUVs on the global car market has been the second largest driver of emissions increase worldwide since 2010. And uh, I mean, you, you can, there, we are showered with reports of this kind. We had another report showing uh, recently from Stockholm Environment Institute and Oxfam that the, the richest 1% of humanity has emitted twi- more than twice as much as the poorest half of humanity since 1990. And you had a, a paper published in Global, Global Environmental Change uh, just the other week that showed that in 2018, when uh, aviation worldwide was the fastest growing emissions source, 1% uh, of flyers, the richest 1%, accounted for 50% of emissions. And, you know, these, these figures are just totally 
mind-boggling. They are dizzying, and they 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 never get a, an adequate political reaction. So my my question when I read this report is: How long are the rich going to get away with it? How long are we going to let rich get away with laying this planet to waste for no good reason whatsoever? I mean, the conspicuous consumption that they are wallowing in, driving their SUVs, running their super yachts, being ultra-frequent flyers, having private jets and, uh, and all the rest of it, account for an absolutely astronomic amount of the emissions that are killing us and, and obviously primarily killing propertyless people in the global south. There has to be a response where we go out and target their machines now. And uh, deflating tires is just a very, very soft way of doing it. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, there, there's a formulation you have um, towards the end of the book that you know that, that climate change is the, the cumulative effect of action at the level of class, and it seemed to me to be you know really very much a precise formulation of, of the problem to some in some sense. Um, I, I think we should talk about the kind of emotional reaction or the kind of sort of psychological reaction which is produced by the kind of thing that you're saying here, uh, in combination with. You know, it's a very common phenomenon, I think, um, the way that what happens to people when they contemplate the time that remains, the very little time that remains. And so the sense of urgency, but also the sense of despair that contemplating that time produces in people. And you have a very strong and very forceful chapter at the end of the book where you take on two thinkers who have really always... Ex- uh, I'm trying to find a word that's polite enough to say on the radio, uh, who have always annoyed me you know, <laughs> on this stuff, which is, you, you know, this sort of despair uh, <laughs> that says, you know, oh, we can't change anything. Nothing is possible. Um, just, you know, embrace the end and learn to die. Um, I, I, I want to push back on that. And I think it's important to push back on that. So perhaps you could tell us how to push back against despair. Yeah, I've uh, also, uh, to use the euphemism, been extremely annoyed by this position. And I frankly find it obnoxious and despicable. And I could use uh, harsher words than that uh, for plenty of reasons. I lay out some of them uh, in the book. But I think that what these intellectuals who um, express this position as some kind of virtuous one, what they do is they articulate a condition, a condition of paralysis and despair. And unfortunately, they just confirm that condition by saying it's a good thing to give up and learn to resign to our fate and uh, embrace catastrophe. But the condition is, is, is a real one. And you, you have figures showing, for instance, in the US that a lot of young people have given up because they see no way out. Uh, but I think that the way to break that paralysis well, not, not the only way to break paralysis, but one way to, to, to get out of that paralysis is to execute actions that quite dramatically bring home that it's not the case that this infrastructure is beyond our control. So the climate equivalent of storming the police station in Minneapolis. Because, I mean, up to that moment, there was a, clearly a lot of paralysis and despair about the systematic violence from police forces in the U.S. But after the storming of the police station and the ensuing actions, you had people feeling almost for the first time in the U.S. that we can actually potentially change the way uh, that that, uh, that uh, order is upheld on our streets. We can potentially perhaps even abolish the police, defund it and things like that, that, you know, demands that, that uh, would never have uh, been on the agenda a year or two back. 
And it, it would, I think it, it can work in the same way with the climate, with the climate crisis. So I think despair became a, a slightly less convincing proposition in 2019 when you had the surge in climate mobilization. But when you, if, if you were to see activists actually being able to go in and take down some chunks of, of, uh, of fossil fuel infrastructure, obviously I'm, I'm, I'm indulging in some kind of fantasy here. I'm dreaming about what, what would be nice to see. I think that it can it can shake people out of the paralysis potentially and uh, and bring home the point that we're not I mean we're not technically or biologically doomed to living with this infrastructure because it does become I think for for these thinkers a sort of self-authorization doesn't it yeah it becomes you know I I get to live my nice novelist's life in New York and uh, sit pretty on you know fly frequently and so on and so on and so on I mean that's repulsive and disgusting in itself, but it seems to me that the more dangerous and the more convincing and the more impelling argument for those of us who value human dignity, who value uh, you know, the basic claims of the political left, are that there are, and it's something that you don't quite talk about in the book, I know you've written or are writing elsewhere on it, um, that there are other possible resolutions to the crisis. And perhaps we should wrap up by thinking about some of those and why it is important that this stuff be at the center now of left politics. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, I mean, there are so many different things that can happen. And this is also, I think, one of the central mistakes of the climate fatalists that they think they know how this crisis will end. They will just end in self-perpetuating catastrophe. But I mean, it can end in lots of different ways, depending on the balances of forces and how they play out in nature. It can end with solar radiation management, or uh, as it's also known, so- solar geoengineering. I think that's quite a quite a likely outcome uh, in the medium term that we need to pay much more attention to what what that would mean. It can end with a total successful transition to uh, a world economy without fossil fuels. I mean, it cannot be ruled out axiomatically, even though it seems quite unlikely because it goes against all the, the current trends. It can end uh, with just uh, attempts to adapt. And uh, sort of lifeboat, armed lifeboat politics uh, that that many observers on the left have warned of. You know, a, a country like the UK isolating itself, trying to live with the, you know, cautioning itself against the shocks of global warming and preventing anyone from uh, seeking help on on English shores. Uh, and just building more walls and keeping foreigners out. It can also end uh, perhaps, potentially, that cannot be ruled out either, in some kind of a, a ecological fascism or, or envir- authoritarian environmental right-wing project uh, that, that would have to be uh, combated, of course. And uh, yeah, we, I have a book coming out with the Zetkin Collective in, in May called White Skin, Black Fuel on the Danger of Fossil Fascism, which discusses these various scenarios in, in, in some length. It's a much longer book than this pipeline thing. Uh, and uh, yes, I think, I mean, it's, there's no way that the, the problem of uh, global heating will become less important. I mean, unless we have a, an atomic war that just obliterates everything or, or something like that, an asteroid impact or something completely unexpected happens. But the crisis is structured such that it is inherently deteriorating. It's, it's, it's becoming worse all the time. Uh, and that means that questions of uh, left versus right and the struggle against the far right and the struggle against fascist tendencies 
will increasingly be determined by that context. And we see trends in that direction already. Uh, we've, we've seen it in the past uh, half decade where the, the far-right governments in the US Brazil, and Brazil doing everything they can to destroy as much of the planet as possible. And we see it with, uh, with the rise of the far-right in Europe in, 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 in recent years that, as we lay out in the book, it still is predominantly climate denialist and committed to total rejection of the consensus of climate science and uh, rejection of reality, really committed to taking up and burning as much fossil fuels as possible. This is particularly important in Germany. But you also have a, a current on the far right that uh, is uh, quite predominant in France that recognizes that the climate crisis is real and argues that the, the way to solve it is to close our borders and turn inwards as nations, both economically and when it comes to, of course, immigration. So the idea that ecology is the border on the, and these things. And we've seen, I mean, the, this kind of green nationalist discourse, you know, it's coming from respectable intellectuals like Paul Kingsnorth in the UK. It's also voiced by not so respectable terrorists like Brandon Tarrant, who, who committed the Christchurch massacre, who said that he had to kill these many Muslims because the overpopulation in the global south and immigration are driving uh, the climate problem. So, uh, I, I mean, our conjecture in this book is that we will see more of this in the years, in the in the coming years, and that the anti-fascist and anti-racist struggles will become will have to become more deeply entwined with uh, with the climate struggle. Last question, very quick. What gives you hope? Well, last year I had a lot of hope. So, in 2018, for instance, when we had this extreme summer. Uh, including in Sweden, where the, uh, with, the, with, the, with the drought and the wildfires and the unprecedented heat wave, I was at a moment of despair. Now, when I'm in moments of despair, I'm much more prone to going down the direction of uh, even more radicalized actions than, than what I've, than what I've uh, outlined here, perhaps, uh, rather than just you know, resigning and giving up. That's not in my uh, constitution. But uh, then Greta Thunberg sat down on the pavement outside of our uh, parliamentary building in Stockholm and started the whole uh, Fridays for Future movement. And we had the Extinction Rebellion and we had the Endigelende camps being larger than ever last year and um, proliferating, uh, spawning other climate camps around Europe. And that was really, I mean, it was the most hopeful and inspiring sequence of mobilization that I have seen uh, as, as a climate activist. So uh, last year gave a lot of reason for hope. The problem this year is that the climate movement agreed to essentially abolish itself when the pandemic started and just go home and give up on the streets and uh, sit in front of the computers and say, now it's all about the coronavirus and we're just going to uh, have to suspend our activities. And that, I think that was a tragic mistake because all the momentum was lost. And we, sh we should have done like the Black Lives Matter uh, movement and mobilized on the streets in ways that that didn't make infection rates spike and things like that. The, the momentum from last year is gone. It will have to be regained somehow. And we know that we'll face more disasters of the kind of the extreme summer of 2018. And then the climate, I mean, the climate movement, obviously, it should, it should learn now to get back into the streets, back into the mines, into the shareholders uh, meetings and, and whatever. But if not before, then we really have to do it the next time we have extreme weather events, whether it be hurricanes or summers like 2018. So lots to prepare for. Andreas, thank you so much. That's all for this week. I hope that conversation has expanded your mind and challenged the way you think about climate action. I hope it also sparks some debate. My thanks to Andreas for taking the time to talk with me. 
How to Blow Up a Pipeline is out from Verso in January, and you can pre-order it now, along with Andreas's truly Stakhanovite output in the past year. Until the planet is free, the machine will be prevented from working at all. I am James Butler, and this has been Navarra FM, and we'll be back next week here on Resonance 104.4 FM. Bye-bye. This show has rounded out our climate focus on Navarra Media, where across the site we've been running climate-focused content. So please, please go check it out on navarramedia.com, where you'll find articles, videos and podcasts on everything from international agreements, climate justice in the global south, nuclear power, climate-friendly lab-grown meat and what really lurks behind Big Oil's climate pledges. As ever, you can and you should support our work because we really can't do it without you. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.